from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Good Friday afternoon to you. I am Sarah Perry, your host on this, the 8th of May, 2020. On today's edition of Washington Watch, we have a real bombshell, and we might have guessed it was coming, but last night, the Department of Justice, the same DOJ that made former National Security Advisor Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, the fulcrum of their Russia collusion case against the Trump administration, dropped the same case against a three-star general in a sudden reversal of course. I'll have former U.S. District Attorney for the District of Columbia, Joe DeGeneva, with his thoughts. In my second block, if your kids are binge-watching Netflix during quarantine, you're going to want to listen to this segment. The good folks at advocacy group Parents Television Council have just released a report revealing that top streaming service Netflix has for years been marketing explicit content to minors. Titled teen-targeted broadcast TV can be vulgar, but stranger things are happening on Netflix. The PTC report analyzed 255 Netflix titles categorized by the streaming service as appropriate for teens, but... Half of those titles were rated either TBMA or R. I'll have Tim Winter, president of the Parents Television Council, with a report. At the bottom of the hour, I'll be joined by our own Tony Perkins with the good news of his renomination to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, as well as his thoughts on what's next for the U.S. Commission. And in my last block, I'll wrap up our discussion on yesterday's National Day of Prayer event with some clips from the President's Rose Garden and some reactions to the event from Kathy Branzell, President of the National Day of Prayer Task Force. I'll also talk with our David Clausen, FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview, on whether he believes the pandemic might pretend revival for the nation. As a reminder, you can go to TonyPerkins.com for more information on today's broadcast, archive shows, and links to social media handles. Follow us on the Stand Firm app. And if you don't have it already, make sure to go to the Google Play or Apple App Store and search Stand Firm or follow the link on TonyPerkins.com. Well, the Justice Department on Thursday moved to drop its case against former National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn in a stunning development that came within days after internal memos were released that raised serious questions about the nature of the investigation that led to General Flynn's late 2017 guilty plea of one count of lying to the FBI. This, remember, was about his conversation with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. Now, the announcement came in a court filing in which the DOJ stated plainly, after a considered review of all the facts and circumstances of this case, including newly discovered and disclosed information, DOJ officials said they concluded that Flynn's interview by the FBI was, quote, untethered to and unjustified by the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into Mr. Flynn, end quote, and that the interview was, quote, conducted without any legitimate investigative basis, end quote. Well, joining me now, who is a man doing quite the press junket at present with his thoughts, and someone who has pegged it from the beginning, is former U.S. District Attorney for the District of Columbia, Joe DeGeneva. Joe, welcome to Washington Watch. Delighted to be with you. 
So let's talk a little bit about the fact that Brandon Van Grack, who was the top prosecutor in the case from DOJ, earlier on Thursday abruptly withdrew from the case without explanation. It was a filing with the court, no explanation offered, and within hours the DOJ moved to drop its case against General Michael Flynn. Now, from the outset, as someone who has watched the development in this case and followed the facts closely, did you see that something like this might be on the horizon? No doubt about it, in light of recent development, including all of the recent exculpatory information, which apparently had been hidden from General Flynn by the very Brandon Van Grack you just alluded to. Mr. Van Grack withdrew from the case because he couldn't continue to participate any longer. My mm-hmm. guess is, is that because of the amazing amount of what's called Brady material or exculpatory material that was hidden from General Flynn and his attorney, Sidney Powell, as well as his previous attorneys, uh, it is clear that notwithstanding whatever Judge Sullivan is going to do, the Justice Department now had no choice but to dismiss the case because of egregious government misconduct. And that misconduct involved Mr. Van Graaff. So that was the reason for the brevity of his withdrawal slip, which was submitted to the court. There's going to be more things like this happening, and I think that uh, John Durham, the U.S. attorney in Connecticut who's leading the investigation mm-hmm. of ru- the Russia hoax for Bill Barr, is now, as I understand it, in full investigative mode and is preparing a series of indictments, uh, particularly conspiracy indictments, against a number of government officials and private citizens. Oh, wow. You know, this is a big year, not just because it's an election year, not just because of the COVID epidemic, but the fact that, if true, this really could be the bomb that blows up in the deep state's face. You just mentioned this critical exculpatory evidence withheld from General Flynn. So if true, given that these non-disclosures were clearly critical and material to the case at hand, could Flynn have ever sufficiently given informed consent to a guilty plea? Oh, absolutely not. And in fact, in the motion to dismiss filed by the Justice Department yesterday, they said that General Flynn, number one, was not the subject of a legitimate investigation, that there was no Mm. basis to conduct an interview with him, and therefore even if even if he did lie uh, or forget or whatever it was that he did, it wouldn't matter because nothing that he said would be material because there was no legitimate basis for an investigation. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter that uh, they had concluded that the conduct of the government, the FBI and, the, and Mueller's special uh, prosecutors was so bad and so beyond the pale that Flynn could not have done anything wrong because he had not been legitimately under investigation, which is something most of us have been saying since the first we found out about the charges against him. Right, right. Now, I read an interview you did recently. Do you have reason to believe that former President Obama knew of then-CIA Chief 
Brennan, John Brennan's scheme to kneecap the Trump administration because you have mentioned that he was sort of the primogenitor of the entire plot and he enlisted the services of foreign intelligence surveillance officers. That, to me, goes all the way to the highest level of the pyramid in this. Do we have reason to believe that the Obama administration was fully informed on what was going on with Brennan? Absolutely. And in fact, we have Mm. a number of pieces of paper now that are coming out that indicate, for example, uh, you you will remember the famous email that Susan Rice wrote on inaugural day, January 20th, about a meeting that they had on January the 5th in the Oval Office with President Obama, the Vice President, Sally Yates, James Comey, John Brennan, and others, and to ensure that everything that had been done in the counterintelligence investigation had been done by the book. That was a meeting that was called by President Obama. So he clearly had foreknowledge of the massive investigation of the Trump campaign, the Trump transition, and the incoming Trump presidency. In addition, in a released transcript yesterday from the House Intelligence Committee, we learned that Sally Yates testified under oath that she learned from President Obama himself that he was aware of the Michael Flynn investigation and the intercepted phone call. And she said that's how she found out about the intercepted Michael Flynn phone call. So it is now readily apparent that Barack Obama is at the center of this with regard to knowledge. And with knowledge comes the authority of the President of the United States. Believe me, Mr. Comey and Mr. Brennan and everybody in DOJ who was involved in this disaster were not going to investigate a presidential candidate of the other party without the express authority of the sitting president of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, my gosh. This, to me, it really gives me pause because as an American who has a deep and abiding love for the Constitutional Republic and for our system of governance, to realize how deep the collusion on this went and the fact that they were so invested on his failure, his impeachment, ultimately, because that really was the end game, it's it's stymieing to me um, that there isn't more being made. But again, knowing what we know about the legacy media, how they... They have a tendency to, to spin things. No doubt they are finding other things to talk about. And it's my understanding that Brandon Van Grock, who was the initial investigator, the top prosecutor in the case, is still working, heading up the FISA division, as, as far as I know, at DOJ. Is that the case? He's heading up the Foreign Agents Registration Act section of the fraud section of the Justice Department. But I don't believe he'll be there very long. And the reason mm. for that is... Given the nature of his conduct in this case, he will either resign and leave the department or he will be removed from his position just the way Bruce Orr was demoted from his position as the fourth person in the chain of command at the Justice Department. Mr. Van Grock can no longer continue to be a DOJ attorney, let alone a supervisor in a very important division of the criminal division. Mm -hmm. So if you're Michael Flynn, what do you do now? What recourse do you have? What is your next course of action, knowing that you've been ultimately exonerated in the press and the minds of many Americans, at least rationally thinking Americans, and you understand the case against you has been dropped? Now what what do you do? You begin settlement negotiations with the Department of Justice for civil settlements for tens of millions of dollars in punitive damages for the violation of your constitutional rights. You give the Department of Justice under Bill Barr 
a chance to say we're sorry the right way, which is pay you tens of millions of dollars. You then have civil suits. That would be for all the government employees involved in framing him because he was clearly framed. And that's what the Justice Department says in that motion. That motion is a concession to civil liability as Mm. well as a concession to unprofessional conduct. It is also a concession that criminal conduct was committed by government officials. That That motion to dismiss, I read it again just before I came on your show. That motion reads like an indictment. It's just not a motion to withdraw the guilty plea. It is a, it's, it's like an indictment. So I think General Flynn's lawyers will start negotiating with the Justice Department. Once the case is dismissed, remember, it hasn't been technically dismissed yet. The judge has to do that. But he's, he has practically no discretion in a situation like this. So I, yeah. unless Judge Sullivan does something else stupid, like he's done a couple of times in this case, he will dismiss the case and then... General Flynn's lawyers will begin negotiating with the Justice Department for a huge civil settlement. Well, we're just about out of time, Joe, but we really do owe Attorney General Barr a debt of gratitude on this case, don't we? He's a great American. He's a phenomenal lawyer. He doesn't care about his next job. He cares about the Justice Department. He cares about the rule of law. He's been a phenomenal Attorney General, and none of this would have happened uh, if he were not the Attorney General. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Former U.S. District Attorney for the District of Columbia, a great attorney, a passionate patriot. Joe DeGeneva has been on today's show. But coming up next, Netflix. Is it as family-friendly as you thought? Your kids are probably already watching it as they warrant their time during quarantine. We'll hear about how the new Television Council report from PTC. And Tom Winter has something to say about how not child-friendly it actually is. Stay with us on Washington Watch. We'll be right back. What are you reading this spring? At frcblog.com, we have timely and original commentary on the issues facing our culture today. Our blog is written by our policy experts, the Family Research Council team, and outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Some of our most recent blog posts include, To abandon the nuclear family ideal is to abandon being human. Why does the abortion industry hate women? China uses coronavirus to oppress religious minorities, and many more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you to live out your faith and to stand for truth. With our blog, we hope to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Again, that's frcblog.com. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, 
Many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth, that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. We can all benefit. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry. We are here on a rainy Friday afternoon in the nation's capital. And I have to tell you, we've been doing a little bit of binge watching on Netflix. That's sort of the streaming service of choice, I think, for a lot of us who are stuck in our homes during this period of quarantine. And particularly for my kids, two of whom are teenagers, they like to rely on Netflix. We naturally review what they watch and we have certain parental controls. But let me tell you that based on a new report out from the Parents Television Council, Netflix and their rating systems may not be as accurate as you've originally thought. So joining me now to talk about the new PTC report is president of the Parents Television Council, Tim Winter. Tim, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, Sarah, good day to you and your listeners from uh, nice, hot, and sunny Los Angeles. Well, we're jealous, so <laughs> thanks for that visual picture. It will help for a while. We put up, the, we put up with an awful lot of garbage to get good weather. So. Well, there you go. So you've warranted that at least. So the report is entitled Teen Targeted Broadcast TV Can Be Vulgar, But Stranger Things Are Happening on Netflix. By the way, a great title for those of you who have watched Stranger Things. But tell me about what this report actually found as concerns Netflix. Yeah, and I want to thank you for that lovely lead-in. We we know that so many parents, especially with the uh, the quarantines going on, uh, even still today, are consuming a lot more uh, electronic media than they have as they usually do. Um, the most watched by far uh, uh, platform is Netflix, and so we wanted to take a look to see what did Netflix call teen programming, a content that was appropriate for teenagers. And so when you look at their categories. Uh, what we what we quickly learned was that almost half of the titles that are labeled as appropriate for teens are actually rated either R under the motion picture system or TVMA, meaning mature audiences only. So by definition, half of the shows that they're saying are appropriate for teens are inappropriate for teens just by using the content rating system. Okay. And then the second thing that we learned, the second thing that we learned was that even the shows that are rated by by Netflix as being appropriate for teens, meaning they're rated TV 14, uh, almost every single show included some of the harshest profanity, um, the words that I would never, ever speak to you on a, on a radio broadcast that I can, you know, the, the, the harshest profanity. Um, and you have to scratch your head and you say, if Netflix is saying that this is appropriate for children, for teenage children, uh, how are parents supposed to be able to trust um, uh, a rating system that's right there on their program guide. Right, right. Well, it, so to give our listeners a little history about this and sort of understand the difference between TV and Netflix, the Telecommunications Act of 96, 1996, under the authority of the FCC, sets these rating guidelines, and it does so for television but we've got a different situation on our hands with Netflix, don't we? So there's kind of an ability to skate the regulations here, isn't there? 
Yeah, you're talking about a, a rating system that was crafted 25 years ago before iPads and iPhones even existed, before Netflix existed, before mm-hmm. Amazon existed. And and so how can you how can you not have a system that uh, that evolves with these new technologies? And then you realize on top of that the the, the antiquated uh, way the guidelines are written, um, each uh, each distributor, whether it's a TV network, a cable network, Netflix, each network rates its own content. There are supposed to be standards, but we, what we've seen is routinely uh, these these networks and, and distributors will rate things inappropriately in order to get more children to watch, knowing that uh, the content is actually inappropriate for children. Mm. So sort of luring them in, because naturally every child is curious, and the better sin nature of man indicates that, of course, we want that one piece of fruit we've been indicated not to take. So they introduced a new parental control system. You've taken a look at this platform. What do you think about it, and is it an effective way to sort of skate the system here? Well, if, if you know, parents have been told that if, if in order to be good parents, you're supposed to monitor what your kids watch, well, of course you are. Uh, and, of, of course, that's, that makes sense. Parents should uh, make the very best choices they can. But when they're told that a show is appropriate for children when, in fact, the content is inappropriate for children, I think of it like uh, I think most of us have gone to the grocery store and, and you look at a back, the back of a box of something thinking maybe should I buy this and you look at the ingredients and the, and the health guidelines and the nutritional value. You're relying on the accuracy of that, in, that information to decide whether or not you're going to allow your family to ingest that into their bodies. It's the same type thing here where you have inaccurately rated material that says it's comprised of one thing when, in fact, it's comprised of something else, and it's very unhealthy for us to be putting into our children's minds. And that's what uh, is so galling at, uh, at these so-called parental control devices, the measures. Uh, if the ratings aren't accurate, then the filtering devices can't, can't trigger and, and work properly. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate. We're going to bring up a free speech argument here. And without sort of having to delve into a deep constitutional law debate here, what do you say to an organization like Netflix, for whom you all were on the front line battling with American Family Association, the 13 Reasons Why series? And I have to tell you that had a particular impact on my house, as we have had kids at my son's high school who have taken their own lives. So this debate was particularly personal to us. What do you say about the arguments that this is truly free speech and they're just expressing artistic content? Well, just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And and we love and cherish our, our First Amendment right to free speech. Um, Netflix and other producers and distributors clearly have, have pushed envelopes just about everywhere we look when it comes to explicit content and graphic graphic material. Um, we're not saying that that uh, some of the stuff isn't protected by their by their First Amendment right to free speech. What we're saying is, is it the right thing to do? It, should you ever produce a television series that is consumed by children mm-hmm. that is linked directly to children taking their own lives? Is that the right thing? Is that really something that you want to hang your hat on as a, as a corporation? Uh, we don't think so. Tim, give me quickly the website where people can download this report. ParentsTV.org. ParentsTV.org. Parents Television Council President Tim Winter has been my guest on this segment. Be careful, little eyes, what you watch. 
Coming up, we'll hear from President of FRC Tony Perkins about his reappointment to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom right after this. Stay with us on Washington Watch. Welcome back to Washington Watch. TonyPerkins.com is our website. Go there for resources, links, and other updates that you want in conjunction with today's show. Don't forget to download the Stand Firm app in the Google Play or the Apple Store. Make sure you have the most updated version. While religious freedom is a central focus of our efforts here at Family Research Council, it's a right we enjoy in this nation, one that impacts every aspect of our lives, one we might even take for granted. But many of us have a tendency to forget how other nations are impacted by the lack of such freedoms. Religious persecution is a regular part of life for millions of the faithful worldwide. And how can the U.S. offer protection? Well, join me now to talk about this and his reappointment to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is FRC President Tony Perkins. Tony, welcome and congratulations on your reappointment. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's great to be with you. It's uh, Actually, sometimes it's nice to be on the other side of the microphone. And, I bet. Uh, have you filling in. You always do a great job. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited about this, as are all of us at FRC and those that follow the notion of religious persecution. We have a tendency to get very stead, very sort of commonplace in our beliefs that everyone has it as we do. And even the religious infringements that we experience really pale in comparison to what you've seen as a commissioner on USERF. So your report is recently just out. We've talked about that here on Washington Watch. Tell me a little bit about now, post-reappointment, what you're planning on focusing your efforts on in the coming year? Well, it's to uh, to continue looking at some of these areas like uh, Nigeria, like um, Egypt, Turkey. Uh, India is not so interested in, in, in working with us. There's some countries we can't get into to work in. But there's some countries that, you know, quite frankly, like, uh, like Sudan, as we've talked about before, uh, eager to make uh, progress, Uzbekistan. And so we're looking for those. Uh, Egypt's another one of those countries trying to make the right moves. And so we want to help those move along to broaden the understanding and the application of religious freedom in their country. So we want to, we don't want to just report on those that aren't getting it right. We actually want to help those countries get it right. And so that's, uh, that's going to be a, a big focus, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve another two years on the commission because it's a, it is in many ways reflects on FRC because FRC is known as an organization that mm-hmm. wants to solve problems. We don't just want to talk about them. We don't want to just complain about them. We want to solve them. And that's, uh, that's how I approach this work at the commission. We actually we want to solve these things. We want to make life better for the, uh, the those across or literally around the globe that are being persecuted for their faith. 
So talk to me a little bit, Tony, about what this experience has done in terms of your own spiritual life. I would imagine seeing this level of persecution up close, and I know it's impacting for me when I get a chance to talk to individuals who've experienced this firsthand. It's very convicting. I realize exactly how much we take for granted here in America. What has it done for your own spiritual walk with the Lord when you realize precisely how much people have had to endure strictly for the same right that we freely exercise here in the U.S.? Well, Sarah, I would say it's given me more compassion for people, all people, because there are are good people everywhere. And it's given me a better understanding of... You know, a lot of people, you know, we, we've seen most of Americans have come to understand Islam post 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are so many people in the Islamic faith that are, uh, you know, seeking just to live peacefully. And to and, and some of them want to change their religions, and they should have the right to change their religion if they want to. Um, but most of them are peace-loving people. And I know that's a, some find that hard to believe, but I've sat down with them. I've met them in their countries, and, and they want the best for their children. We all, we all basically want the same thing. We want, mm-hmm. you know, we want meaning to life. We want our families to be healthy and safe and our children to have a bright future. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we understand the truth, and we understand that purpose and fulfillment of life is found in him. And so what we argue for as, as Christians, and, and even what we do on the commission, is we focus on that fundamental human right. We don't advocate a particular religion. We just advocate a right, this fundamental human right, because as Christians, we understand we all have a choice, and we all, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, should aggressively both defend and promote that idea, that God idea, that every man, woman, and child has a choice to choose to follow him or not. You've offered such excellent leadership on the commission, and strangely, and this would not have been something that automatically would have come to mind for me, but the pandemic has really shined a light on some of the worst state actors, those countries that are more convicted than ever that they need to shut the doors and prevent any exercise of religious freedom. Are you finding that to be the case and what you see worldwide based on how these other nations, nations that don't enjoy democratic freedom, are actually dealing with religious persecution and the pandemic. Yeah, crisis reveals character. Mm. And, I mean, we've even seen that here in this country. We've seen states, we've seen governors, we've seen mayors that have uh, overreacted or the hostility toward religion has come out. Same thing's happened internationally. And it's all the more reason we've got to be on guard for that fundamental human right and defend it. Tony Perkins, fresh off his announcement of a reappointment by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, doing critically important work. Well, coming up, we'll get some insights on yesterday's National Day of Prayer from President of the National Day of Prayer Task Force, Kathy Branzell, and FRC's David Clausen will answer a very big question. Is revival in America on the way? Join us and Washington Watch's next segment. Stay tuned. What are you reading this spring? At frcblog.com, we have timely and original commentary on the issues facing our culture today. 
Our blog is written by our policy experts, the Family Research Council team, and outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Some of our most recent blog posts include, To abandon the nuclear family ideal is to abandon being human. Why does the abortion industry hate women? China uses coronavirus to oppress religious minorities, and many more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you to live out your faith and to stand for truth. With our blog, we hope to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Again, that's frcblog.com. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth, that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. Happy Friday to you. It is Friday, the 8th of May, and we're going into Mother's Day weekend. So happy Mother's Day to those of you listening who have children of your own. Well, in 1988... The Congress called on President Trump issue each year a proclamation designated the first Thursday in May as the National Day of Prayer, on which people all over the country could turn to God in prayer and meditation at churches and groups as individuals. And yesterday was the 2020 National Day of Prayer. Americans got a chance to observe our leaders bow their heads in prayer praying for the nation and each other as we grapple with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. And never before have we needed prayer like we need it now. So here to give me some details of and feedback on yesterday's Day of Prayer is President of the National Day of Prayer Task Force, Kathy Branzell. Kathy, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Kathy, tell me a little bit about what you were seeing from leaders this year, what particular aspect of the day of prayer impacted you the most? Uh, I think so many things, but the unity was astounding. Um, I was so grateful that people just had a need, a hunger to come together and to pray for one another and to pray uh, not just for our nation, but our, our theme was pray God's glory across the earth. And uh, when we when we named that theme last summer, we had no idea where we would be this year. Um, and and people are like, "Oh, we just pray for America." And I said, <laughs> "I'm just telling you, this is what God told me. We're supposed to pray God's glory across the earth, based on Habakkuk 2:14." And um, and so just this coming together of the generation and the nations was astounding to me. Boy, I tell you what, it must have been a very surreal 
situation to realize after all the planning had gone into place, you were in a situation where the prayer was never more needed than it is right now. Not just the epidemic, not just the pandemic itself on the health effects, but the economic fallout, the educational fallout, the fallout in terms of jobs. We we are really impacted, every one of us. There is not a person I know who is not impacted by this. And never before have we needed prayer like we've needed it this year. Were you touched by the fact that both the president and the vice president relied individually, distinctly, openly on the scriptures when they were speaking in the Rose Garden? Absolutely. And and we love that. There was um, that also took place last year. We're so grateful to have a president who called, you know, for this day of prayer that is a law. And and it was really fun also, uh, Will Graham and myself, you know, hosted the National Day of Prayer National Observance last night mm-hmm. from the Billy Graham Library because we had to pivot. We're always in Washington for our national observance and when everything got shut down and then when the um, shutdown was extended, we couldn't come to Washington even um, to broadcast. And so we were grateful. Mm-hmm. And the history of the National Day of Prayer even goes back to uh, his grandfather, Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. It was actually Billy Graham who asked President Truman in 1952 and called on Congress then for a national day of prayer. And then we were grateful that Ronald Reagan in 1988 gave us a specific day. But a lot of historical, um, scriptural context yesterday loved that we had congressmen reading the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So many tweets and so much social media of scripture, you know, agreeing. There may be a lot of things we disagree on, but agreeing on God's word and where our help and hope comes from, that was glorious. How wonderful. And I tell you what, I have to tell you when I'm watching the events at the time, I remember thinking to myself, you know, my jaw was a little sort of slack because I realized we have a president and a vice president who are not only praying for the nation on the National Day of Prayer per congressional recognition, per calendar year, but these are individuals who are praying individuals, and we're having a chance to really watch them petition the throne of grace, doing what they are already doing in their own lives, and when I had a chance to see Karen Pence speak and realize the fire she's come under for her involvement Mm -hmm. with Christian school, and so this is somebody who has really withstood the fire of trial, and the Lord has just brought such favor to her and to the White House overall, I believe, and it's just so impacting to be able to see our leadership, the highest office in the land, praying for the nation in such an impactful way. Kathy, as you're going into next year's planning, when does that begin? I mean, do you begin already after you take a breath and maybe sit down and watch a little TV with your kids this weekend? Are you already on to the next National Day of Prayer? Yeah, I have to admit, I've already been thinking about it, but planning will start Monday. You are absolutely (laughs) right. And I think after what we did last night, um, we have gotten so much incredible feedback uh, from last night. And if your listeners didn't get to observe with us, they can go to nationaldayofprayer.org and uh, and watch the event. It was an incredible Mm -hmm. two hours of unified prayer for America and the world. And... um, 
So I think that uh, we we need to get planning for next year quickly <laughs> after absolutely so much so so much um, thanks for last night. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. Kathy Brinzel, president of the National Day of Prayer Task Force. I'm going to pivot. I want to talk to our David Clausen, who is FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. I want to talk a little bit about biblical perspectives and get his reaction on some of the specifics that the president and vice president offered to the world yesterday. David, welcome back. Hey, great to be back with you, Sarah. So I want to start with uh, two audio clips from Vice President Mike Pence. And I was talking previously with Kathy about the use of specific scripture. And in this scripture here, Vice President Pence quotes from Philippians. Let's listen. The sweetest words that we ever hear are when people will take a moment, walk up, and say, I'm praying for you. And you know they mean it from their hearts. And we hear it all the time. We can attest firsthand. America is a nation of prayer. The American people have long believed in the power of prayer, that the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much, and that in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we're to present our request to God, with the promise that the peace of God passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Pence also offered some specifics on who and how we should pray. And as we gather today and remember these families and these heroes and all of those who have labored every day to protect our nation during these challenging times, let's also remember to pray for all of the men and women who defend this nation in good times and bad who wear the uniform of the United States, who are standing a post at this hour in far-flung places around the world, who are deploying as we speak to defend this great nation. Let's remember them as well. President Trump also offered some remarks and himself relied on Scripture. Let's listen to what he had to say. In every part of our country, we've seen grace of God through the love and devotion of our fellow citizens. As Scripture assures us, the Lord your God is not your midst, a mighty one who will save. And I think it's it's so true. Think of that. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Oh, I love the fact that he not only says it once, he says it twice. This is a man who's so impacted by the scripture that he goes back and he reads it a second time. David, tell me what your reaction is when you hear those clips. I think I probably had the same reaction that you had, Sarah, and that probably millions of Americans around the country heard. I, I just really appreciate the remarks from the president and vice president, you know, in the midst of this fight against the unseen enemy of the coronavirus, how encouraging to hear the President of the United States and the Vice President speak with conviction about the need for our nation to turn to God during these challenging times. It's encouraging. You know, I'd add uh, that it's important to realize that observing a day of national prayer like this, it really is part of our history as a nation. It's not often Mm -hmm. taught in the schools anymore, but this is part of who we are as a people. Uh, Kathy mentioned just a, a moment ago that the kind of the modern observance 
began in 1952 when Billy Graham uh, put a lot of pressure on Congress, uh, saying that you know he just detected that there was a, a need and a hunger for prayer. But even way before that, whether it was uh, then General George Washington uh, leading his men in prayer at Valley Forge, mm-hmm. uh, Abraham Lincoln calling the nation to pray at the height of the Civil War, or even in more modern times. President Wilson uh, leading the country in prayer during World War One, or uh, President Roosevelt in World War Two, or even President Bush after the 9/11 terrorist attacks. But it's just really neat that here in this country we have a long legacy of American leaders calling this country to pray, and I think that's important because um, public prayer gives all of us an opportunity to reflect really on our own dependency and inadequacy, mm-hmm. and to direct our thoughts and attention to God, who alone. Uh, is the one who's able to heal and restore this nation. You know, Kathy and I were just talking about the the motto this year of the National Day of Prayer from Habakkuk 2.14, which reads, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I find it so interesting, before she even realized what this year was going to hold, that she picked this particular passage when Habakkuk himself was actually dealing with plague. And I think, isn't that so like God, to just bring everything full circle and to provide the perfect scripture as an inspiration for us in this period of time because every one of us, every one of us should be on our knees right now. We should be on our knees anyway, but during this time of a pandemic, an unprecedented world event, every one of us should be on our knees. Absolutely. And, you know, as Christians, uh, especially, we are told, we're actually commanded in First Timothy 2, 2 to pray for those in authority. And I think that's why I love the National Day of Prayer, again, because it gives us a timely reminder that, especially as believers, we should be praying for our country. We should be praying for our leaders. You know, as we seek to move forward out of this pandemic, what a a timely reminder to be praying for those who are making such important decisions, and not just on the National Day of Prayer, but, you know, this should be the posture uh, of Christians. uh, You know, every day we should be in daily prayer, and I think part of our daily prayer should be for our leaders and for our country. Yes. Oh, I could not agree more. You know, C.S. Lewis has a quote about how God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pain. And I think a lot of people are discussing whether an event like this and those leading up to it, because I think everything from murder hornets to fires in Australia to locust plagues in Africa, it's it's positively apocalyptic. David, I think you and I, as believers, we've looked at Second Chronicles and thought, huh, we're checking a lot of boxes. This is some really interesting world development here. But boy, I tell you what, if hardship like this doesn't drive you to your knees, I know myself in my own walk, I have found it so much easier and so much more reflexive to go to God when things are falling apart than when things are together, because it's very easy to rely on our own sort of self-importance and and our self-reliance to believe that we've got everything under control, but this is very distinctly not within anyone's control. Do you think this provides an opportunity, portends coming revival in the country? Is this God's way to rouse us from our deafness? It very may well be, and that's definitely going to be my prayer. And, you know, you just kind of studied the history of revivals, whether it was the Great Awakening in the 1730s mm-hmm. or the Second Great Awakening in the 1790s into the early 1800s. 
those periods of intense revival where people were returning back to the Lord, they were preceded uh, by difficult times, and they were characterized by intense prayer and the preaching of God's Word. And even the verse that uh, characterized the National Day of Prayer this year out of Habakkuk, the context mm-hmm. of even when Habakkuk was writing that uh, his, his, the minor prophecy was a context where, right where the people were about to go into exile, into Babylon, and it was about to be a really, really difficult time. And so I think, you know, this time where there's a lot of unknowns, there's a lot of angst, if the people of God pray and seek the Lord, I think we could absolutely see an unprecedented time of revival, and I think that's what we should be praying for. You know, it presents an opportunity as well for those of us in the faith to use what we have, the certain knowledge of our salvation and our reliance in the God who keeps his promises, to be able to use that steadiness, the peace that passes understanding that President, that Vice President Trump was, was, uh, what Pence was talking about. In fact, when he relies, I love that verse from Philippians. It's one I keep close to my heart. Who else can guard your heart with peace when every Everything seems absolutely the polar opposite, but it's really an opportunity for us to use that peace that we have, despite the falling down of the world around us, to really speak it into other people's lives and to hopefully bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. That's my prayer, and I pray that, you know, months and years from now, when we look back on this time, Sarah, we'll be able to point to this moment as when God did an amazing work in his church and the lives of individual believers, and that many, many people who would have not heard the gospel uh, previously will have turned in faith and repentance to Christ because of what we're going through right now. Do you have one particular thing in this minute we have left that you're going to pray for going into this next year? Absolutely. I'm going to be praying for our leaders, and I'm going to be praying for wisdom and discernment as we seek to uh, turn this econ- get this economy revved back up and praying for the hearts of America to turn back to God. Thanks, David. David Clawson, thank you so much for tuning in on Washington Watch today. Happy Friday to you. Happy Mother's Day. And we'll talk next week on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 